We're in the, the uh, Gospel of John, as you know. Today we're going to look at verses 22 through um, 29. We're coming off of that. Last week we looked at the uh, Jesus walking on the water. Some powerful stuff in this chapter that we've looked at already. Uh, the feeding of the 5, 10, 15, 20,000, if you will. As we've talked about, the Bible only mentions 5,000 men, but if you add in the wives and children that were most likely there with them, it would have been a much higher number, which makes the, the miracle even more amazing. But I was, I was thinking about these two previous miracles that we've looked at in this chapter, you know, and Jesus never went about trying to prove himself, as it were. He was moved with compassion, the Gospels tell us, because he saw the people like sheep without a shepherd. And when he did that miracle of the feeding of that multitude, it was just a way of communicating as the Son of God, God incarnate, his love for the people, his willingness and desire to provide for them, to take care of them, and that's true every, of every human being who's willing to yield their lives over to Christ. His desire, you know, he, he, he wept over Jerusalem. Remember, after he came into Jerusalem on the donkey, and even though the people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he wept because he knew they didn't really recognize him for who he truly was and is. And he said, if only... You know, you had gathered to me. I would have taken you under my wings like a hen or a chicken gathers her babies to herself. A little bit of a paraphrase there. But his desire is to love on us. It really is to, to love on us, to take care of us, to provide for us. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. And so that's what he was communicating through that miracle. Jesus was never about showing off. I wish I could say that about all those who represent him. And then with the walking on the water, um, it was his way of exhibiting the fact that as God incarnate, he has total authority over the elements. Remember, the moment they got, uh, he got into the boat, the wind stopped. The turmoil stopped. But even before that, as he's walking on the water, remember how uh, tempestuous and tumultuous that storm was? How many of you were here last week? So you know what I'm talking about. He's walking out there like it's a piece of cake. That's because he's God. He has total authority over the elements. And that was his way of showing his disciples, his followers, that he's absolutely in control. The good thing about that, that eliminates fear. When we become fearful, it's because we've forgotten that God is totally in control. It didn't look like it when they looked out and they saw the waves and the wind and the waves are lapping up over the boat and they, they think they're going to die. But that's when we need to be the most mindful of the fact that in spite of what things look like, God is in control. So we pick it up after that story and we saw how when Jesus got in the boat, the wind ceased, and immediately they were at their destination. Yet another miracle, because another aspect of Jesus' total authority 
He also has authority over time and distance, time, space, and distance. Remember in the book of Acts where um, <clears throat> I believe it was Philip, he's, uh, he leads the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, baptizes him, and then God transports him to another place, translates him, the word in the Bible translated. So God has total control of all things, including time, space, distance. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get into this. Start reading in verse 22. On the following day, when the people were standing on the other side of the sea, who were standing on the other side of the sea, saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal on him. Speaking of himself, of course. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up this time in your word. We pray uh, for um, insight, understanding, inspiration. Uh, Lord, we thank you for our daily bread, which is your word. You're the bread of life, and you have manifested yourself through your word. And we know that even as physical food feeds our physical bodies, your word feeds our spirits. We ask you to feed your people today. Feed your sheep, because you are the good shepherd. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the following day, the people who'd been a part of the loaves and fishes miracle how many, we don't know. There were still a significant number, apparently, that were hanging around the area. The people who had been part of all this, they saw Jesus put his disciples into the boat. Remember, we looked at that last week, with him remaining behind. And, of course, they had no idea he'd walked out onto the water in the early morning hours to join them. They saw that there was no other boat there, so there were no boats available other than the one that Jesus had put his disciples into, so there was no way for them to follow, which they desired to do. They wanted to keep following Jesus around. Um, they say, I hate to put it this way, they say you should never feed a stray animal, right? Because if you do, they'll keep coming back. And these people were like stray animals. Jesus had given them a great meal, free, out, out of nowhere, basically, out of a you know, couple of fishes and a few loaves. And so they're desirous to keep pursuing him, but they don't have a way to do it yet. However, verse 23, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. So some more boats arrived from Tiberias, which 
was on the western shore of Galilee. It still is. I always enjoy going there. It's kind of an interesting place. Um, it's probably the number one Mecca for the Orthodox community in the northern part of Israel. But just a, it's a neat little seaside town, if you will, right on the western shore of Galilee. And so these other boats come over near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. So Bethsaida, up on the northeast shore, these folks had come across from the west, central west side of Galilee, up there to Bethsaida. And so as we already stated, a number of people were still hanging out in the vicinity where the miracle took place, and they're desiring to pursue Jesus. Now they have a way to do that because these other boats have arrived. I'm not sure how all that worked or went down as far as boat transportation at that time, if they paid to get a ride or how that worked, but they are there, and apparently those boats are available. So verse 24, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. As we've mentioned previously, Capernaum is on the northern shore of Galilee as well, about six miles west of Bethsaida. That's a very interesting place to go also. There's uh, ruins there of what they believe was actually Peter's mother's house, where we read about in the Gospels. And she was preparing meals for them, and she got sick, and Jesus healed her. And there's a, the remains of a synagogue. It's, it's a great site to visit. But at that time, it was a thriving little community on the North Shore. And so they got into the boats, came to Capernaum. That was where Jesus stayed when he was in that region. As you know, he was from Nazareth, but he spent a lot of time around the Galilee region with his disciples. They were all from that region. And when he was in that area, he stayed in Capernaum. So he had traveled with the disciples once he got in the boat and they conquered the storm. They wind up in Capernaum. And so the people got there too. They were suspected that that's probably where he would be. They were seeking Jesus. And as we will see, and we kind of touched on it already a little bit, they were seeking Jesus for what? The salvation of their souls? Forgive, forgiveness of sin? No, instant gratification. Some things never change, right? Here we are 2,000 years later, and that's a major preoccupation of our society, of our culture. Instant gratification. So now we have Grubhub and all those other, you know. My grandson just started delivering pizzas again for Domino's. So. But we live in an age, of, and even then it was the same thing. They were seeking Jesus for instant gratification. They'd experienced it. They liked it. They wanted more. And I think an awful lot of people, if they do choose to seek after Jesus, they seek him for what he can do for them. But we should be seeking him for what he's already done. I mean, yeah, it's great. Um, God blesses us in many ways. Oftentimes what we see as blessings are really inconsequential and insignificant to God. And that, that mentality has been a plague on this planet for a long time. Even the disciples fell victim to it. They were perplexed when Jesus told them, 
It's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they said, oy vey. I added that. If, if a, the rich guy can't be saved, who can? Because they equated, and again, it hasn't changed in 2,000 years. They equated uh, material prosperity with God's favor. Just like the modern faith teachers do. One of the problems, there are a number of problems with that. The biggest problem is it's not biblical. Another problem with that is if you aren't prosperous, then you're made to feel like God doesn't love you. God doesn't like you. He's not blessing you. And yet as you trace the, the history of the body of Christ, the Christian church over the past 2,000 years, many of the most dynamic and powerful men and women of God were dirt poor. I'm not promoting that we should all take a vow of poverty, but I think we all do know that materialism and prosperity definitely has its downside. In fact, I watched an interesting, it was a four-way conversation with Tucker Carlson and three other guys, and they were trying to, they were analyzing what's gone wrong in our, in our world, in our society, our culture, and they all agreed that too much prosperity has really damaged us. It's hurt us rather than helped us. Same thing happened to Israel. <clears throat> God doesn't bless his people in order to damage them, but the problem is the more blessed we are, the more we tend to forget where it came from. And we begin to use it in wrong ways. So they're seeking Jesus. They're highly motivated. As soon as those boats arrived, hey, let's go. But they were seeking instant gratification. They weren't seeking Jesus uh, for spiritual renewal, awakening, salvation. They were looking for another free meal or whatever the next miracle might be. Verse 25, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So again, a few miles uh, to the west in Capernaum. They find him there right where they thought they might find him. But they're saying, when did you come here? How did you get here? Since no one had seen him depart, and there had been no other boats. Remember, there weren't any other boats until the people came from Tiberias. They were perplexed as to how and why he had gotten there. So he answers them, and he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And so, and Jesus had said throughout that course of his earthly ministry a number of times that the signs should be an indicator of who he really is. He said, but you didn't um, come because you saw those signs. You're not seeking me because I'm God incarnate, the son of the living God. You're seeking me because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Just like so many today, the people's focus, again, was on instant gratification, satiating their physical desires. And that's why, even though it's not biblical and even though it's very damaging, that prosperity message is very, very attractive and very appealing. But it doesn't bring people into a true knowledge, understanding, and relationship with God. 
Albert Barnes. I want to read his little commentary on this section. The miracles which Jesus performed were proofs that he came from God. To seek him because they had seen them and were convinced by them that he was the Messiah would have been proper. But to follow him simply because their wants were supplied was mere selfishness of a gross kind. Yet, alas, many seek religion from no better motive than this. They suppose that it will add to their earthly happiness, or they seek only to escape from suffering or from the convictions of conscience, or they seek for heaven only as a place of enjoyment and regard religion as, a val as valuable only for this. All this is mere selfishness. Religion does not forbid our regarding our own happiness or seeking it in any proper way, but when this is the only or the prevailing motive, it is evident that we have never yet sought God aright. We are aiming at the loaves and fishes and not at the honor of God and the good of his kingdom. And if this is the only or the main motive of our entering the church, we cannot be Christians. Pretty powerful stuff. I hate to say it, but I have a suspicion that probably describes the vast majority of the people who are going to church today. <clears throat> we joked many years ago, we were down uh, by uh, Milne Stadium, Roosevelt Park in that area, as you, some of you know, some of you are with us then, and we were studying through, um, <clears throat> I think it was the book of James, but there was a lot of discussion within those studies about suffering, and as believers, we should not be surprised when we suffer, there is suffering involved in following Christ. And we joked about it and said, we need to put a banner out in front of the church that says, come and suffer with us at Calvary Chapel. You know, like that would really draw a lot of people, right? But that's the truth of the matter. But people don't put stuff like that in front of their churches because nobody would go. And so they, what do they do? They tell everybody that if you just uh, acknowledge God, come to church, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You'll be prosperous. You'll be, you won't get sick. Your bank account will be overflowing and running over. Is that reality? Not in the least. And sadly, many, many people have actually turned away from God because of the disappointment that comes when they find out that doesn't really work. It's like any Ponzi scheme or pyramid scheme. It only works for the people at the top. They get all the money. You get nothing, honey. Okay. Okay, verse 27. <clears throat> Jesus tells them, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. Don't labor for the food which perishes. Physical food. Now, again, you have to just take a minute and think about what Jesus is saying. He's not saying... Don't ever work anymore. Just sit around and trust God. No. But what he's saying is, don't make this your first or highest priority, seeking after physical things. In fact, in Matthew 6, he tells us not to worry about those things that God will provide for us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. So he's not saying don't work. The Bible clearly says if you don't work, you don't eat. You need to work, you need to take care of your family, but the highest priority, he says, 
but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Spiritual food. Make this your highest goal and priority. And what is that spiritual food? Jesus says, taught the disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. So he is our spiritual food. But how is that imparted to us? It's through the word of God, like exactly what we're doing here this morning. God has chosen to reveal himself, to make himself known to us through his holy scriptures. But when you think about this, Jesus says, don't make physical food your highest priority. Make spiritual food your highest priority. How much time do we invest in feeding ourselves spiritually versus everything else we do in life? Think about that one. We could all do a lot better in that area, I have no doubt. Well, you know what happens when we go too long without feeding our bodies physically, right? We get weak, we get run down, we get malnutrition. Well, what happens when you don't feed yourself spiritually? You get spiritually malnourished, you get spiritually run down. And again, I'm afraid there's a lot of people running around like that. And yet the Bible says, he who endures to the end will be saved. We need endurance. We need perseverance. We need strength uh, to finish the race. And that only comes by feeding ourselves spiritually. Good thing is we are doing that here this morning, but once a week won't do it. How many of you could survive eating one meal a week? None of us. Matthew 6, 31, here it is, through 33. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Well, for the people of Jesus' time, this was a real thing, you know. Now, for us, when you worry about what you shall eat, you look through your cupboard, you look through your refrigerator, there's tons of stuff, but nothing sounds good. When that, for them, it was a matter of survival. What shall we eat means we don't have anything to eat. Whole different ballgame today. What shall we drink? Should it be Gatorade? Should it be Coke Zero? Right? Milk? Skim milk? Ugh. I only drink whole milk. The way it came out of the cow. For the most part. It does get a little bit of processing in there. I mean, I don't have a cow on site, so. But here we go. Or what shall we wear? <laughs> oh, boy, my wife could really get me on this one. But I keep stuff forever. I have shirts that are like 20 years old and more. You know, she has a policy. When she gets a new article of clothing, she has to discard an article of clothing. I never do that. <laughs> Unless it gets a hole in it, worn out, something. But what shall we wear? Jesus says, don't worry about these things. For all these things, the Gentiles seek. And what does he mean by that? A Gentile is a pagan. A Gentile is somebody who doesn't worship God, follow God, live for God. When you're all focused on the material things, you're living like a pagan. For your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. Sometimes we act like God doesn't know, don't we? Like he doesn't know. He knows everything. 
He knows what we need. The thing is, we can't sometimes distinguish our needs from our wants, right? But seek first, just like Jesus is telling these folks there in Capernaum that just rolled in on the boats. Don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, these material things that are just inconsequential to God, God's resources are unlimited. Therefore, if you don't have something that you think you need, then apparently God doesn't think you need it. Think about that. And God doesn't deny us things to punish us or to make us feel bad. He uses the situations and circumstances of our lives to draw us closer to Him, to strengthen us, to give us that endurance, that patience that we need to finish the race. We all know what happens to somebody in life when things come too easily, don't we? When people are pampered, spoiled, kids growing up, get everything they want, no accountability, no punishment for wrongdoing, coddled, pampered. Does that produce a really good, strong, healthy adult? Not by any stretch of the imagination. And so if God did that for us, if he pampered us and coddled us and gave us every name it and claim it thing that we wanted, we would be useless in his kingdom. We would be absolutely useless. And there are some who are. Okay. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And then he goes on. The food for which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you. So he's not giving us an impossible task, something that is not achievable. The Son of Man will give it to you. Good news. The spiritual food that we need for everlasting life and really for abundant life here and now. John 10.10, Jesus said he came to give his life and life more abundantly or life to the full. That means here and now and then on into eternity. The spiritual food we need for everlasting life is freely given to those who ask by Jesus. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. We used to sing this as a chorus back at Calvary Chapel in the Jesus Movement days. Pastor Chuck will get up with his big booming voice and just start singing this a cappella. I'm not going to do it now. <clears throat> Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. That's just speaking about the very thing that Jesus is talking about here. That spiritual food. You can't buy it. Jesus paid for it. It's a free gift. Come to the waters, come by and eat, 
God wants to give us these blessings, these spiritual blessings, this strength, this comfort, this peace. 1 Corinthians 2.12, Paul writes, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So how do we know what the blessings are? The Holy Spirit, as we meditate on the Word of God, as we feed on the Word of God, the Holy Spirit imparts those truths to our hearts and our minds, and we're able then to ask God to give us those things which He's promised to give us. Luke eleven nine through 13, you all know this one. So I say to you, Jesus speaking, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. But keep listening here so you know what he's really talking about. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Loving father wouldn't do that. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? So these are earthly analogies, examples, but keep listening. Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you ask God for good things, is he going to give you bad things? If you then being evil, which we all are, again, that's another element within the church today, this idea that we're all, we're all just great, wonderful people. No, I'm okay, you're okay. God loves you just the way you are, which he does. But as he reaches out to you and calls you to himself, he's calling you to change, to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. If you then being evil, sinners, God's not evil, but we are, know how to give good gifts to your children. So yeah, we have a sin nature, but we still love our kids. We want to bless them. We want to treat them well. How much more will your heavenly Father give? Now the whole thing here is about asking. It'll be given to you. Knock, it'll be opened. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it'll be opened, so forth. But here's the punchline. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Because as I talk about all the time here, God, that's his ultimate concern, his ultimate goal for us is that we would be with him for all eternity. We call it God's forever family. Everything earthly, temporal, fleshly, carnal is just that. It's temporary. It has no eternal value. The only thing that has eternal value is the eternal life that is imparted to us through God via His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the whole goal. Live forever. One of my favorite radio guys is Dan Bongino. And one of Dan Bongino's rules is he says, don't get dead. Don't get dead. He's, you know, whether it's talking about vaccines or COVID or what have you, or just different things that happen in life, do your best to not get dead because once you're dead, you're gone. You're done in this life, but not for eternity. Not if you know Jesus Christ. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, death is just the beginning, not the end. But we need to elevate our thinking. We're constantly being pressured 
by the world, the flesh, our own flesh, the world, the flesh, and the devil to submit to this world, the things of this world, the desires of this world, to be, for that to be our focus, whereas our focus should be on eternity, it should be on God, it should be on the spiritual things. How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? <clears throat> it's that indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that enables us and energizes us to be true disciples of Christ. To make good choices, godly choices. And it's the Holy Spirit coupled with the Word of God because without the Holy Spirit, the Word of God appears to be just another book. It's not. God wrote it. It's the only book in all of the world and all of human history personally written by the God who created all things. Keep that in mind. Every other book, there could be some good books, Warren Smith's books, Chuck Smith's books. They're written by men. This book is written by God. Takes it to a whole nother level. So as we are born again by the Spirit of God, as we acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we ask Him to forgive us of our sins. We ask Him to take up residence in our hearts and in our minds, to live inside of us, to fill us with His Holy Spirit. Then when we read God's Word, it all makes sense. Not because it, it didn't make sense before, just that we didn't understand it. And Paul also writes in Corinthians that you know, the carnal man cannot, cannot understand spiritual things because they are spiritually discerned. And the fleshly man, the carnal man, has no spiritual discernment. So if you want to understand the Word of God, you need to do exactly what Jesus just said here in Luke 11. Ask, seek, knock. Ask your Heavenly Father for a new car, <laughs> a bigger TV, can you believe the size of some of these TVs now? They're amazing. My wife is very fortunate. We have a small living room. <laughs> There's no room for one of those big TVs. My TV, probably 10 years ago or so, maybe considered big. Now it's not. No. How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. I hope everybody here today asks God each and every day to fill you with His Holy Spirit. Do you? You should be. Because without it, you're dead in the water. Without the Holy Spirit, you're going to go astray. You're going to be misled. You're going to get off track. Not that God doesn't love you, but God will not force any. I don't know how many times I've said this and it just doesn't seem to sink in for a lot of people. God will never force anyone to do anything that they don't want to do. And yet people get discouraged. They get frustrated. They get upset. They pray for their unbelieving loved ones, friends, family members, and those people don't seem to be responding. And they blame it on God. What? What makes you created in the image of God? Because you have a free will. You are a free moral agent. God loves you. He will send His Holy Spirit 
to draw you to himself. He will send people to talk to you. You know, we talk about the non-believers who just don't seem to be getting with the program. I can't tell you how many times I've counseled believers and you give them godly biblical counsel and they go out and do the opposite. Don't ever blame God. If you're not listening to him, if you're not following him, if you're not making good choices, that's on you. That's not on God, okay? And if God was to force everybody to do the right thing, we would just be puppets. We'd be robots. God doesn't want that. How many of you want that in your lives with your wife, your husband, your children, your friends, that they could be forced to love you? That's not real love, is it? It has to be a choice. It's a decision. God proved his love. He made his choice. He made his decision. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. He didn't have to. He chose to. And we all have that same choice. We can choose him, choose life, or we can choose our own path, our own way. But the end thereof are the ways of death and destruction. There's a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death and destruction. But it's your choice. You can choose. So Jesus said, the Son of Man will give you these things. Why? We're still in verse 27 of John 6, by the way. Why? Because God the Father has set his seal on him. The Father has set his seal on the Son, on Jesus Christ. What is that seal? The seal of anointed one, Son of God, Messiah, Savior. What is a seal? A seal speaks of validation, authenticity, genuineness, real reality. The Father has set his seal on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the real deal. There's an awful lot of fake, phony stuff going on out there today. Counterfeit, you know, pirated, you know, merchandise and so forth. People get ripped off every day. They order something through the mail and it turns out it's just some fake, phony piece of junk from China or something. Jesus is the real deal. The seal of the Father is upon him. And those miracles that he was performing, he wasn't doing it to show off. He didn't have to prove anything to anybody. But they were that visible evidence of the seal of Father God on his son, Jesus Christ. Then they said to him, so in response to this deep theological treatise, if you will, or monologue from Jesus, they asked him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? I like what the, the way the NIV translated I think is better in this case. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works of God, the works God requires? Listen to this again. What must we do to do the works, the works God requires? So what was their reaction or their response to what Jesus told them? Don't, see, don't labor for physical food, labor for spiritual food. And think about that again, too, the idea of laboring for our spiritual food. How many of us think along those lines that getting the spiritual food we need daily, 
requires labor, work. I think a lot of people tend to think, well, I, yeah, I have my work life over here, my job, whatever I do for a living, how I earn my living, how I provide for myself, my family, the physical things that Jesus is talking about. But the spiritual realm, that shouldn't be work. Really? Have you ever studied the Bible? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work being a follower of Christ. If it's, it was easy, a lot more people would do it, right? Think, think about that. And years ago, God told me something. I don't know if I've ever really lived up to, to it or not, to tell you the truth. But I guess I, I must have been, I don't know, I try not to ever complain to God. I don't think it's right to do that. I, I have no right to complain to God. I don't remember the exact context of the conversation I was having with him. And it could be that I read it. I don't remember, honestly, but it basically boiled down to this. God told me, whatever you put in, that's what you'll get back. You know, it's the law of sowing and reaping. The amount of effort you put in is what you'll get back. Put in a little effort, you get a little back. You put in more effort, you get more back. Laboring for spiritual food. They asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? What they're saying here, folks, indicates that they're seeking to pursue a relationship with God by their own good works. What shall we do that we may work the works of God or do the works of God? God requires. That's a problem. Isaiah 64, 6, we are all like an unclean thing. That doesn't fly in a lot of churches. If a lot of churches, if the pastor got up and read this verse, we are all like an unclean thing, people would be very offended by that. However, it just happens to be the truth. And all of our righteousness, righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. These people are saying, what must we do to do the works God requires? And yet Isaiah told us several hundred years before Christ came, we're all like an unclean thing. All of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. The best effort we can ever make, the best things we could ever do, the greatest sacrifice we could ever make. In God's eyes, it's all just filthy rags, which tells you how amazing His love for us really is. His love for us has nothing to do with our performance, how good we are. So Jesus answered and said to them, He doesn't tell them what works they need to do. He says, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. Salvation does not come about by man's work, but by God's. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you know this. For by grace you've been saved through faith. What is grace? God's unmerited favor. What is merit? It means something 
that you earn based, you know, merit-based immigration means people are allowed to immigrate based upon what they're able to contribute to the society. We don't have that right now. I mean, we've had doctors and different medical personnel and different, you know, tech, technology people, computer people that have come from different countries like India and are contributing to our country. But by and large, our immigration system isn't based on merit. It's based on who can get across the border. Whether they can contribute anything to our society or not. We're probably one of the only countries, if not the only country in the world that does that. Because we're really smart. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It means you don't deserve it, you haven't earned it, and you can't earn it. By grace you've been saved through what? Faith. What do I tell you guys all the time when you're praying for your loved ones that don't know Jesus? Ask God to give them the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. Those are two absolutely essential requirements for someone to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. You have to have faith, which God imparts to you, and you have to have repentance, which means you realize and recognize that you're going the wrong way and you're going to turn around and go the right way and follow God. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. What's not of yourselves? The faith. It is the gift of God. See, what I'm telling you is biblical. Pray for the gift of faith. It is the gift of God. Not of works. They asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? Nothing. You can't do that. It doesn't work. Not of works. It's of faith. By grace, through faith. Not of works. Why? Lest anyone should boast. No one can ever take a single ounce of credit for their salvation. And that's a scary thing because a lot of people try to do that. They're just like these people that are confronting Jesus. I don't mean confronting in an in a intense way. They're just questioning him, asking him what he means by all this. Lest anyone should boast. No one can take a single ounce of credit for their salvation. It's a free gift from God. The price was paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. <clears throat> the work of God, Jesus says. Not your works, folks. Your works as it pertains to your salvation. Okay, so let's get that clear. And we'll clarify that more in just a moment because believers are expected to do good works. But as it relates to our salvation, they're meaningless. They're totally ineffective. The work of God is to impart faith, the gift of God, to all those who will receive it. What did Jesus say? God loves to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So another aspect might be if somebody says, well, I, I, I just don't believe. I don't, I don't have any faith. Encourage them. Ask God to speak to their hearts by His Holy Spirit, to give them that gift of faith. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. Our part. What's the work? They said, 
You know, what, what, what God does God require? What works does he require of us? Our part is to simply believe in his one and only son. As I've said many times, God did the hard part. God did the heavy lifting. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus endured unimaginable suffering. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Because he loves us that much. Our part is to simply believe in his one and only son, Jesus. The one whom he sealed. Acts 16.30. Remember Paul and Silas are in the Philippian jailhouse. It's midnight. They start praising God. God sends an earthquake, throws open all the doors of the jail cells. The jailer figures he's done, he's toast, he's failed at his job. He's about ready to kill himself. <clears throat> but then he brought them out, Paul and Silas, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Does that mean he could get saved for his household? No. If they believe, they will also be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, you and your household. And the understanding there is that he would go home and lead his family to Christ. But they asked him, what must I do? Just like what these people are asking Jesus, what are the works that God requires? And then Jesus comes right back with the work of God. Is that you believe in him whom the Father sent. Believe, that's our part. Because God knew that's all we could really handle. The old covenant failed. We talked about it last week during communion. Not because of God, but because of man. Because we cannot keep the covenant with God without falling short. John 1.12, as many as received him. So yes, believing is absolutely important. In fact, it says to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. But there's a receiving involved as well, receiving and believing. A lot of people claim to believe, but have you received? You can believe, but God can be, still be external in your life. He can be on the outside looking in. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, here's my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him. It's receiving and believing. There is, however, as we get ready to close out here, a way in which good works are involved. Ephesians 2.10, we read 8 and 9, here's 10. Saved by grace through faith. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So when we're born again, we're not just, you know, refurbished. There's a lot of refurbished stuff out there today too, right? You never know what you're going to get. Refurbished. We're not refurbished. We are recreated, spiritually speaking, mystically speaking, in Christ. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Name it and claim it. Prosperity. Big house. New car. Rolex. No, we're created in Christ Jesus for what? Boy, that's weak. I want to hear you guys. What are we created for? 
There you go. Which God prepared beforehand, before you even knew him, before you got saved, he was already planning your life. He can do that. That we should walk in them, those good works, walk in them. Our, our life in Christ is called a walk, you know, walk, walking with God. Sometimes it's called running, running the race. But as we walk through life following Christ, good works should be just a normal, everyday part of that. And I've said it over and over again. I'll repeat it here this morning. We don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because we are saved. Jesus responded to the people there in Capernaum who rolled in on the boats pursuing him. They said, what are the works that God requires us to do? No, he said, no, no, no. The work of God is that you believe in him whom he sent. There are no good works for salvation, but there should be good works following salvation. Because you see, someone can be a non-believer and do good works. Do we realize that? There's a lot of people out there doing good works, but they don't know God. Why are they doing the good works? Well, some are doing it because they're hoping if there really is a God, which they're not sure if there is, then maybe those good works will get them into heaven. Others do the good works so that they will get recognition and appreciation and maybe a little worship, you know, like a George Bezos or a Bill Gates or a, you know, those kind of people. You can do good works and not be saved, but you should not be saved and not do good works. You see how that is? Now again, the lack of good works doesn't mean you're all of a sudden going to go to hell. It just means you're not being the fruitful believer in this life that God would have you to be. Philippians 2.13. This takes us right back to asking, seeking, knocking, asking for the Holy Spirit. It, for it is God who works in you. He has to be in you to work in you, right? So you've got to be born again. You've got to... Receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need to ask Him for the Holy Spirit. It is God who works in you both to will. So one of the ways we can tell that God's not really working in us like He should be, if our will isn't lining up with His will. If our desires aren't lining up with His desires, then something is amiss. It is God who works in you both to will. It has to start with that. We talked this morning about choices, decisions. God has given us a mind, the mind, the will, the emotions. If you don't have the will to do good things, the will to do the right things, the will to follow God, then there's not much he can do about it. Because again, he will not force you. I came up with a phrase years ago. I think I did. My wife's always telling me, you know, I come up with these little quips and quotes, and she says, oh, my family invented that. <laughs> and I'll say, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so, Georgie. <laughs> is she back there? Where is she? <laughs> I don't think so. 
But I think I made this up. But if I didn't, don't hold it against me. God empowers right choices. So if you say, I, I know what I need to do, I know the right thing, I just can't do it. No, that's not true. When you make the right choice, God will empower you and enable you to follow it through on it. He works in you first to will, so you need to ask God, show me your will, Father. And if you don't hear a clear-cut response, you look at the Word of God, He will guide you, He will direct you. It is God who works in you both to will, and notice the next part, to do for His good his good pleasure. Wait a minute, I thought it was the other way around. I thought God was supposed to do for my good pleasure. Oops. That's what, a lot of so-called Christians believe that. You know that? They believe God's there to do your good pleasure. Excuse me. According to his... Hi, Georgie. There she is. I'm not sure she heard that last part. I love you. <laughs> God works in you both to will and to do for what? His good pleasure. Oh, wow. I guess I had it all wrong. You mean I'm supposed to be pleasing Him, not the other way around. Hello. Hello. So as we yield our lives to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He will work in us. This is the work of God, Jesus said, that you believe in Him whom He sent. As we yield our lives to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He will work in us. One, He will place good Godly desires in our hearts and minds. Two, he will give us the ability to actually follow through and do those things that are pleasing to him. And it gets even better because when we do that, it's also beneficial to those around us. It gets us out of the realm of self-centeredness, selfishness, which, by the way, all sin is rooted and grounded in Selfishness. When we yield our lives to Him, He puts the good godly desires in our hearts and minds, and then He gives us the ability to follow through, and He is pleased, and people around us, our friends, our family, our co-workers, everybody within our sphere of influence, benefits from the fact that we are following God, we are doing that which pleases Him. Let's stand. Again, don't, don't be overwhelmed. It might sound like a tall order, but he told us he would do it, right? God will work in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. God will give his Holy Spirit to those who ask. This is not an insurmountable thing that God has called us to, but it does require daily yielding our lives over to him, submitting ourselves to him, putting that highest priority on seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you.
If you have a prayer request this morning, raise your hand, please. Got a lot of them. And that's good because God loves to hear from his kids. Father, right now in Jesus' name, we ask you to help us with the challenge we've received today from this teaching. Lord, help us just to rest in you. The good news, Lord, all it takes to become a child of God, a disciple of Christ, is to believe and receive. And so, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has not yet received you into their heart, into their mind, into their life, that you would help them to do that today. Lord, impart to them that gift of faith, that gift of repentance, to be able to turn from a life of self to a life of selflessness, taking up their cross and following after you. If you're here today and that's your desire, I'd encourage you right now just to talk to God. Say, Father, I recognize that I've sinned. I've fallen short of your glory. All of my good works are like filthy rags in your sight. I thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sins. And I ask you to cleanse me, to wash me, to forgive me, to renew a right spirit within me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, Father. And Lord Jesus, I thank you for taking my place on that cross, for dying in my place, that I might have the precious gift of eternal life. I'm opening the door to you now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please give me new life, I pray in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, I'd encourage you to talk to me or one of the leaders here this morning. Let us know that you made that decision. Lord, now I lift up all those struggling with health issues. It's no fun being sick or injured, especially at this time of year. It's a time of holiday celebration, celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray for healing, Father, for those right now. There are some in this room and some watching online who are just crying out for relief from pain. Lord, we lift up Faye Beckwar, who broke her arm, and it's been a lot of pain. Pray for healing for Faye. Lord, for others here today that have either have injuries or some kind of uh, illness, whether it's allergies, cold, flu, sinus, COVID, whatever it might be. Lord God, as we talked about this morning, you have ultimate authority over all things, and that includes our health, our physical bodies. You have authority over every sickness, every disease. Lord Jesus, you de demonstrated that powerfully while you were here on this planet. I pray, God, in Jesus' name, that you would pour out your healing oil upon those who are afflicted today, no matter what the condition is, cancer, lung disease, kidney, pancreas, liver, lungs, whatever it is, God, it's, nothing is too big for you, nothing is impossible, nothing is too difficult, and we humbly ask, in Jesus' name, for healing, for strength, but Lord, no matter what, just like Job said, we will praise you. And we will thank you. And we will keep our eyes on eternity. But Lord, we pray for physical healing. We pray for mental and emotional healing from anxiety and depression and all those emotional things that we struggle with and deal with. We ask you to bind the enemy and take away the fear, the doubt, Lord. Your word says that your perfect love casts out all fear. Please pour out that perfect love upon us and cast out the fear. We ask in the precious name of Jesus, we pray for healing of marriages and friendships, relationships, 
that have been damaged. And Lord, where, where we may have played a part, we ask you to help us to humble ourselves, to repent, to ask for forgiveness, to be instruments of reconciliation and restoration. But Lord, we pray that uh, the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy, but you've come, we might have life and life more abundantly. Please restore abundant life into those damaged marriages and other relationships, we pray. Finally, God, we pray for finances. This is a difficult time of year. A lot of people spending a lot of money if they have it. But Lord, for those who don't, it can be kind of discouraging and depressing. We pray that you would help us to follow what we learned today. First of all, that you are our provider. You promised to take care of us. But Lord, the caveat is that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. No matter, no matter what place we find ourselves in here this morning, whether very prosperous or very much in need, that you would help us to seek first your kingdom to keep our eyes on you and to trust you to provide as you have promised to do. Strengthen our faith, Lord. Encourage each one here today. And we pray for blessings upon the food that we will be partaking of shortly from our wonderful cafe. And we ask you to receive this final offering of praise now. In Jesus' name, amen.